0: Thank you, all for being here tonight. Um, if you want to go ahead and open up uh, to Judges, chapter eight, uh, we are on the third and final chapter of um, Gideon and his story, and so we'll be um, closing out tonight. And if you could keep your uh, keep your reactions to the Thunder game under wraps until we're until we're out of here, we'll they play bad the first the first. 15% of the game anyway, so uh, you don't want to watch that, but uh, we'll find out later. So um, we are all familiar with the idea of a pendulum, right? We, we know what a pendulum is. It's something that perpetually swings um, back and forth, um, but, but something that, that it also does is it proves to be a pretty helpful illustration for a lot of life, a lot of spirituality, a lot of the Christian walk of, of always trying to find uh, that, that balance of what it is to be in the middle. Um, and as sinners, feeling that pull constantly going one direction or the other, that, that one day you're over here, everything is bad, and you try and you fight to bring it back down to center, but then something else swings you out to the other side. You, you overcorrect, or, um, or, or an event happens and it swings you to the other side. And that, that is the Christian uh, that's, that's the battle, that's the Christian life is constantly fighting for what that is um, in the center. And so that's what's going to happen to our friend Gideon. So thus thus far, the last two weeks, um, where we've started, he's over here, um, as far as we can tell, he's, he's a coward, he doesn't have faith, um, he's hiding away from the things of God, and, and so the Lord works, him, works in him and enables him and brings him to center, and, and for this for this one bright, shiny moment, he does well, right? He leads well, um, he has faith, uh, he gives the Lord the credit for everything that, that happens, he makes good decisions, things go great for him. And that's for about a half a second before that pendulum begins to swing the other direction. And now he, he, doesn't, he doesn't revert back to faithlessness and fear, he moves into arrogance and pride and so that's what we're going to pick up um, in chapter 8, starting in verse 4. And I'll do as we've done in the past, where we'll just kind of we'll walk through step-by-step uh, step the story and then kind of look backwards at it for what we can glean from it. Um, so if you remember, uh, Gideon's men had chased uh, the Midianites out of the valley. Um, they'd begun to run south along, uh, along the Jordan River. Um, away, they're moving away from the Sea of Galilee. And um, he, had, he had called some other tribes over. They had helped cut them off um, and had done basically another round of damage to the Midianite army and actually captured some important guys in their camp. And as far as we can tell, immediately after that, the Midianites cross the river. So they go east across the Jordan, and they're still running away um, from, from Gideon and his 300 men. And so they're chasing them, but at this point, uh, they're, they're tired. They're tired. They're worn out. It's been a it's been a long uh, fight. They they've not had a lot of uh, reinforcements. They've not had a lot of refreshments, and so they cross into this area, which is still, uh, even though they're east of the Jordan, is still Israelite territory. That the that had been the, the section that the tribe of Gad had been um, assigned when they when they split up the prom- the promised land, um, and so being in Israelite territory, Gideon thinks that he's going to be able, this will be good, I'm going to be able to ask for help. Um, we're going to get some, some nourishment for my men. We're going to be able to rest and things like that. And so when they come up on these towns, um, the, basically the first thing that they, he does is he says, hey, can we get some bread, probably some water for my men, right? Can we, can we have a, a place to rest? Can you give us some nourishment? And he justifies it because he he basically says, hey, I'm, I'm the one who's taking care of the Midianites. Like You were you under their oppression too. I'm taking care of them for you, so it's a pretty fair request for me to ask for some bread. And, and it is. It is a fair request. Um, but here in, in verse 5, we see an important shift, at, at the very least in Gideon's language, if, if not also his, um, his heart, and, and most likely his heart. He says, I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna. And that that's what he believes is what what justifies them making a sacrifice on the account of his men. Compare that to what he had said previously in verse 3. God has given the leaders into your hand. Or in chapter 7 when he says, Arise for the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hands. The the cry of the men in the middle of the night uh, surrounding their camp was, For the Lord and for Gideon. So what's the difference between what he says now and what he's been saying? God is starting to drift away in his in his mind, in his heart, and here in his language. That as he had gotten a taste of victory, he's starting to forget the source of that victory. He's grown bold where previously he was bold in the Lord. Now he seems to be bold only in himself. And we'll see that going forward, that he's... He's going to drop off mentioning the Lord more and more. So he, he does this. He approaches two different towns um, with this request, and they both respond the same way. They refuse. So you haven't, you haven't finished it yet. You haven't done anything for us yet. We've not seen the benefit. And, and remember, these people were on hard times. They were still living in the season of being under oppression from the Midianites. They didn't have a lot of resources to go around. So even a, even a small force like 300 men would have been fairly costly for them. It wasn't, wasn't like your neighbor asking you for an egg, right? This, this was a big uh, deal to them. It would have been a serious hardship. And the last time we see someone disagree with Gideon, he responds pretty well. He's patient. He's calm. He actually makes a very wise decision diplomatically, and instead of fighting with them, he's he flatters them, right? He compliments them. He gives, kind of lets them feel like they were more a part of the victory than, than maybe they really were. But that, is, that has changed. That is not how he responds to these, these two towns. He responds in anger and with violent threat. He is becoming more and more a tyrant, less a faithful, godly leader, and more dictator. And so he, he does use the name of the Lord here. Um, but given that it is wrapped in this vengeance-filled, violent threat, it's, it's likely that that was, not a, that was not a good use of the Lord's name. It's likely he's just trying to bring some authority and credibility to what he's saying, even though it's, it's his plan. This is clearly not the Lord's plan. So even though he uses it, it's, it's not in a good way. So it's clear he is morphing, and he is morphing Less and less, he's he's no longer that Jeroboam, right? He's no longer that one who Baal couldn't even contend with. Now he's he's coming back to Gideon, um, which is which is problematic. So he he is rejected by these towns, and he continues forward, and he finds out that the Midianites are camped at this at this place called Karkor. Um, and and this verse ten is really kind of the first time we get a we get a good count about how big the Midianite army was, uh, both now and originally, it says that there are 15,000 men that are there because 120,000 had fallen in, ba- in the battle and in the ensuing chase. So we, we know that originally they had 135, roughly 135,000 men. So now the fear of the 32,000 from a couple weeks ago starts, starts to make a little more sense. We begin to understand why most of them hit the road when given the opportunity, because they were greatly uh, outnumbered by the Midianites. So um, instead of a direct attack, again, Gideon shows that he has some tactical ability. He has some strategy, some military strategy in his mind. He, he doesn't just come up and attack them. He sneaks essentially what is around the back. So they're, they're coming from the west to this town. So he sneaks around the back and attacks them from the east. And again, uh, they're caught off guard. They're surprised. Uh, and he, he takes them. Uh, he wins the day. He destroys their army. Um, and he, he gets what the passage calls two kings, um, this Zeba and Zalmunna. And so um, he has victory. He should be happy, right? Things are good. Things are set. We're going to go make peace in the land. Not yet for Gideon. Um, instead of being happy for the outcome and being ready to move forward in his leadership he feels like he has to do something else first and if you remember he made a couple of threats on his way to garkour and so instead of just forgetting about it since he had victory anyways he's going to go make good on those threats and so he captures a young man from one of the towns and he forces him to give him all the names of the elders the leaders of that town and he he brings his trophies, that is the two, the two kings of the Midianites, he brings his trophies into the town, he pulls the leaders forward, and he's basically, he's just there to rub it in their face. This is the moment, you didn't think I could do it, look what I can do. Um, nothing short, no other potential motive here than for them to be uh, in awe of Gideon. Them to think much of what he had done. Um, I, when I hear this, I hear kind of a spoiled child saying, look what I did, right, so proud of themselves when, when they weren't really the ones who, who did anything. I think this makes me think of um, any time there has ever been a championship game anywhere in any single sport, someone, undoubtedly someone, will always give the interview sometime after the game. Nobody thought we could do it, but we did it. It doesn't matter if it's the Golden State Warriors. It doesn't matter if it's Alabama on their 50th championship run or how talented it doesn't matter that everyone actually expected them to win someone will always say nobody thought we could do it but we did right because they're proud of themselves they want to be the top they want to be the top dog well that's that's what Gideon does here he wants to prove you didn't think I could do it and they couldn't they didn't but uh you didn't think I could do it and I did I, I showed you and and there's God is nowhere to be found in his conversation, there's no credit being given to anyone else but himself. It's about that pride. And so he, he does take it uh, a step further. He doesn't say, okay, now you know and I'm going to go home. He makes good on his threat and he punishes them. He pulls the leaders out and he beats them with thorns and sticks and whatever else. He, he puts them down. He lets them know who the ruler is, who the king is, and that will matter um, later, it will it will change what we how we view some of his words um, later on. And then he goes on to the second city, Penuel. and his anger at this point has grown. He doesn't just beat them there; he takes their their defensive tower, which would have been very important to them. They were uh, they were on the what am I say easternmost uh, side of Israelite territory. It would have been a big deal for them to have a tower. He tears it down, and then. I can think of no other way to describe it, but it goes on a murderous rampage, and he kills every man in the city. Now remember, this is not a Canaanite city. This is an Israelite city. So he, he's proven he has lost all control, um, that he is no longer considering the will of the Lord. he's killing his own people. And then his rage just continues as he shifts his focus to the two men that he had captured, right? They're, they're still with him. They're traveling with him. And although it's, it's not really a surprise that he's going to end up killing them, um, the interaction he has with them is a little bit interesting, um, and it gives light to his, his motives for killing them. He has a conversation with them in which he's basically he's, he's putting them on trial. Um, he, he is referencing a, an action that they took, the Midianites took, sometime in the past. We don't know exactly what Action obviously it involved the city and obviously it involved them killing Israelites, but that's that's about all we know. Um, but he, he basically puts them on trial for murdering Israelites, and the the two men at first kind of try to flatter him. They say they were like you, they were kind of like a king, right? They they give him this this compliment, but that that doesn't do anything. That doesn't dissuade his anger, and so he he sentences them to death. He says you're you're going to die. Consider for a second the irony of that moment. What had just happened versus the, this trial that he's putting them under. He, he's putting them on trial for killing Israelites, whom he called his brothers. Right? We we have no understanding that he would have lived in this place. So he didn't. He's not talking literal brothers. I mean, he means nationwide his brothers. You killed them, so now I'm going to kill you. What had he just gotten done doing? Murdering Israelites. He was guilty of the same thing that he was putting them on trial for. He even says that if, had they not killed them, he would have let them live. He was hypocritical to the utmost extreme, and he doesn't even realize it. That in his pride, in this season, he has become morally blind. He does not see what he has become. It doesn't, he is not aware at all. And that's something we need to, we need to key in on. That can happen to us. That there can be seasons when we are as blind as Gideon, when we don't see our sin. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. So he sentences them to death. And instead of killing them himself... He tries to pass it off on his son. There's a couple of different interpretations about why he did that. Some would say he was being a coward again and he just wanted his son to to do the dirty work. Um, What he also could have been doing in in a warrior culture, in fact, even in a a Canaanite culture, um, that kind of would have been an honor um, to be be given the the duty of slaying uh, the rulers from from the opposition side. Um, this, This could have been a moment where he was looking at his son saying, You're my favorite. You're going to be my successor. Um, I, want, I want you to do it and take this honor. But either way, the son responds in fear. And that, that should strike a little bit of a, uh, a bell of, of reminder for us. Who does that sound like? Someone responding in fear, not wanting to do what they're being asked to do. It's, it's Gideon. It's like father, like son. Right? We, we see traces of, of who he was. So in that, in that one moment, we get to see who Gideon used to be, and at the same time, we see who he has become now. And so his son refuses. He said, I, I won't do it. Um, and so the two kings now change strategies, and they begin to mock Gideon. Right? Essentially, you're not man enough. And what does he do? Like a child, he takes the bait. Right? He falls for it, um, and he does murder them. He kills them himself, and he takes the crescent ornaments um, that would have been, would have hung around the neck of their camels, and that was what identified them to other people as royalty. Um, It would have been kind of their, uh, their ring, their signet, their ring, whatever you want to call it, um, that people knew who they were. He takes it, and that was a customary um, response. When you beat your enemy, you got to take what, what identified them as a certain level of royalty and authority. And he takes it for himself. And and this is a symbol of what Gideon now thinks of himself. That he has transitioned into this mighty warrior, um, this conqueror, and he has he really has no need for God's help in his in his mind. He no longer needs God because of who he is. And so um, before we before we move on, I want us to stop here and recognize this is a this is an important point in the progression of Gideon's moving away from the Lord. That, that he's taken a few major steps, and, and right here is where he's about to take one more. So the first we see, we saw Gideon forgetting about God, right? That God is moving further and further away from his mind. He's no longer giving him credit for the actions of the good things that are happening to them. Um, and then he begins to just act in wild disobedience and immorality with, with murder and pride um, and, and jealousy, and so we, we, we see that now. Uh, we're going to see that last full step, that, that full coming around into blatant idolatry. Um, that, that he's going to take that final step off the cliff. And it begins in verse 22. The people ask Gideon to rule over them as a king. Um, and they're saying, since you are the one who delivered us from the hands of Midian. And he corrects them. Kind of, right? He gives, a, he gives half of a right answer. Um, he first says, no, I'm, I'm not going to rule over you. I'm not, we're not going to establish a kingdom, so my son is not going to rule over you either. God is going to be, the Lord is going to rule over you. So he, so he gives half of a right answer, but what does he not correct them on? Who delivered them from the hands of Midian? He lets, he lets that hang out there, that even though they said, you delivered us. He doesn't correct them. He just lets it. And by letting it hang out there, he's saying, I delivered you from the hands of Midian. He's allowing them to think that. And so he doesn't get partial credit here. Because what he's doing is he's trying to take glory from God. That's a, that's a miss. And that's a revealer of his true heart. That even though he says God will rule over them, he wants to be treated as king. He's already started acting like a king. He's punishing his people for not doing what he wants them to do. And then we're going to see him progress into that. So he, he gathers up gold from the people and he makes an ephod. Um, another, again, another echo of a previous story that we've heard about someone gathering up gold to make an idol. Well, here he makes an ephod, and there's some argument here about what it means by ephod. It typically, Um, in in mosaic law that was a holy garment that the high priest would wear uh, when he was approaching the, the presence of the lord so it was a part of the whole get up that the high priest would have now mosaic law was also clear there was only to be one there was there was only to be one of these everybody couldn't just go making these and then use them as they saw fit but that's that's essentially what gideon does here by making his own he's making himself the authority uh, both, as a, both as a king, a political ruler, but also even as a spiritual leader. And he is going to be their spiritual leader. He's just going to lead them in the wrong way. And so as it, as it plays out, this ephod is not used for worship of God. It becomes an idol. Um, there are a couple of, of thoughts that they could have just been worshiping um, the ephod itself. They could have been worshiping Gideon as he wore it. Um, there's even the possibility that they took it and placed it over um, a, an altar of, for Baal and worshiped Baal again, simply with this breastplate. So one, one way or another, um, they had moved back to rampant idolatry in Israel. Despite, despite the victory, despite the peace that they were about to get for 40 years, they forgot who, their, who the source of their peace was. They had forgotten about God just like Gideon had. And so I want to spend just our, our last few minutes of Gideon um, learning from this story, because ultimately this is, a, this is a story of warning. Even those in Scripture who God deals with, talks to, engages with on a very direct, personal level can easily easily and quickly fall into sin and destruction. So we, we read this story and we think, how could, that, how could that possibly happen? Nobody in his shoes would respond with idol worship and taking credit. After all he'd seen, there's no way he should have moved into that level of, of sin uh, and moral failure. But the truth is, there are lots of people who once were believers or thought themselves to be believers and have fallen prey to moral failure. What, whatever it may be, drugs, adultery, um, cheating, uh, stealing, what, what, whatever it may be. If you, if you look at someone and, and, and you were to walk up to them and say, did you ever think you'd be here? Did you ever think that you would do that level of, of sin and those, make those level of mistakes? They will all say no. No. No one ever expects that they would ever do something that horrific. So we read this story, and none of it, we all say, there's no way I would react as Gideon did. But the truth is, many have, and many will. And so this is a warning, a wake up call to us. It is, it is not inappropriate for us to read this story and think, this is a warning to me personally, not just to the church as a whole. It is. Not just to the church as a whole, but to me personally, I need to wake up, pay attention to what happened here so that it, I don't make the same mistakes, so that I don't fall away as Gideon did. And so, what lessons can we learn from Gideon? What can we, what can we draw from him? The first uh, is to be on guard. First is just to be aware. Be aware of the risk, be aware of the warning that's given here that there's an enemy And the enemy is out to destroy you. Ephesians 6 tells us, it says, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, that is, things that can easily be seen, things that are obvious, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, And then most of you probably know, like it goes on to explain in detail the different parts of armor that a believer should have, and and for me, I don't I don't know about you, but for me, this illustration is always I've had a hard time bringing this home because when I hear things um, like breastplate and and um, you know even a helmet, things like that, I think I always think of a suit of armor. Well, when I think of a suit of armor, I think of a decoration in an old mansion right or an old castle right we don't live in a time where that's used in a a military battle type setting but if you but if you think about it like this that if somebody were to come up to you and and frantically warning you hey you need to put on a bulletproof vest you need to get a kevlar helmet you need to get some combat boots you need to grab a rifle what are your first thoughts going to be Something's going on, right? I need to, I need to pay attention to something. There's some danger here. Somebody is coming after me. Something bad is about to happen, right? You, you're going to perk up because you're going to realize things are, things are serious, right? And that's, that's true. For the Christian, that's true. Someone is coming after us. Someone wishes to destroy us, our lives, and more importantly, our faith. And so we need to have the urgency and and the preparation that a a soldier would have on the battlefield. Because on this side of heaven, that's where we are. That's always where we will be, is in a a state of battle. Now, we have the, the glorious joy of knowing that we win, but that doesn't mean we don't need to be prepared. We do, or we will fall away like we see Gideon do. So that's the first thing. Be on guard. Be aware. Be ready. Second. Do not forget the source of your victory. Um, The earliest mistake that we see Gideon making here in in this passage, uh, once he had begun to be a true leader, was that he forgot where the strength and his leadership came from. Uh, That he forgot to keep reminding himself that it was the Lord working in him and not himself. He forgot to keep preaching the gospel to himself. Uh, Martin Luther is quoted as saying, whether or not he actually said it, we're not sure. But um, he's, he's quoted as saying, I preach justification by faith every week because every week they forget it. And that's, that's true. We do. Every time we fall away, that is us forgetting the gospel. We are forgetting God. We are prone to forget that our source of strength and comfort does not come from ourselves. It doesn't come from what we create. It doesn't come from our jobs. It doesn't come from money or health. It comes from God and God alone. And we, we tend to get comfortable and established and everything's taken care of in our lives. And when that happens, we begin to, we, we wouldn't say it out loud and we might not even think it to ourselves, but we, we begin to feel and think that we can live without God, that we don't need him anymore. We don't need his provision and his guidance. I've, I've always wrestled with this idea that in America, we, we don't suffer a lot of religious persecution. There are other forms of persecution, but religious persecution, we don't deal with that much. Uh, we, are, we are overwhelmed um, with the wealth that we have. We're, not, um, we're, we're certainly not living in poverty, and our standards of poverty are very different than standards of poverty in, in the rest of the world. Um, we have this great wealth, and, and those are blessings. I'm, I'm by no means saying that those aren't blessings, but I think as sinners, we have taken what God um, has blessed us with and we've, we've made it a bit of a hindrance because we, we don't use those to, to revert worship back to God. We use them for our own comfort. And when we get comfortable, we forget to rely on God. If, we don't, uh, if, if we're not wondering where our next meal will come from, we don't have to ask God for our next meal. Because we can all drive two minutes and have one. We don't have to think about an angry mob finding out where the Christian lives and showing up at our door. There are many who do. We we hear those stories often now um, because of our ability to, to hear what's going on in the world. If you if you were in that situation, you'd drop to your knees. You'd rely on the Lord because you'd have no choice. That's your only option. So it's safe to say that we don't have to worry about those, and so we have to be extra careful and recognize just how much we may be conditioned to not rely on God and to think that we can do it without Him. And so not not only is it a pastor's ability to preach constantly the gospel to us so that we don't continue to forget, but for you to preach it to yourselves, right? You could take that quote and and adapt it to say, "We, we preach the gospel to ourselves every day because every day we forget. We absolutely must keep reminders all over our life of what Christ did on the cross for us and our reliance on him for salvation, for freedom. The less we think about that message, the further away we get from the Lord. The voice that, that guides us and that shows us where we can pursue and find God gets quieter and quieter the less we rely on him. And that's because of, that becomes so easy because of the next lesson that we see from Gideon. And that's that the path to destruction is subtle, it's easy, it's progressive, it's, it's very, it's hard to recognize. Right, I, I pointed out earlier that Gideon takes these steps away from God, right? He, he mentions it, he begins to mention him less and less, proving that he has, he has forgotten about his provision. Then he begins to act immorally, he acts out. And then he just abandons them all together and worships a foreign god, another god. And notice that this downward move, is, it's not a jump. He doesn't go from everything being good all the way to worshiping a, a literal idol. Right? It, it happens progressively. So for, for us, we have to consider that there is sin in our lives right now that is keeping us from communion and faithfulness with God and we may, not even, we may not even know it. We may not even be aware of it. That's a, that's a scary thought if we were to can consider the reality of, of that. And what's, what's even scarier, like in, like in the church, when we see someone that's, that's dealing with a spiritual crisis, something, that, something big that's going on in their lives that is, that is a struggle, that is ripping them apart, the, one of the problems is, is we never see it until the whole house is on fire, right? We, we never see it until it has become an utter disaster, right? None, none of us know, for all we know, for all the, the church knows of one of its members is that everything was fine one day and everything is lost the next. We know that's not how it happened. How it happened was for months and for years previously, it was getting progressively Worse, that sin was making its way more and more into their lives and taking over their minds and their thoughts and their consciences until eventually, yeah, it was a disaster. And the problem is that no one knew. No one cared to ask. No one cared to get to know that person well enough that, to even have those kinds of conversations. right? That, that's, that's why you hear me talk about things like community so much. It's because this is the kind of thing that's at stake. It's not, just a, it's not just a discipline that we're supposed to check off the box. It's what protects us and keeps us. It's a means that God has given us that keeps us from getting to disaster. It's, it's somebody coming alongside us in our life at step one when you say, hey, I struggle with, with this, right? When you, when you hear stories of, um, it's, it's pastors because those are the ones who make the news. Obviously, it happens all, all the time, but when you hear stories of pastors who commit adultery and have affairs, and everyone is shocked, right? Everybody's totally caught off guard. Someone, there's someone who's not caught off guard. That's, that's God, because he saw the progression, right? He didn't just start paying attention when adultery happened, right? He, he saw the years of looking lustfully at women. And then when it progressed to seeking it out on the Internet, when it moved into into flirting and inappropriate relationships, until eventually, yeah, it culminated in adultery. See, we have to root out this this stuff. We see it we see it as small, but we have to deal with it then because it will absolutely necessarily lead to destruction. That we need to be diligent, not only in stopping new sin from coming into our lives, but to to checking our hearts and see what might be there already. And do battle against it there. And just because someone, just because you might struggle with a sin that, that no one will ever know about, doesn't mean it's any less destructive. Right? Just because it doesn't lead into the house burning down doesn't mean the enemy is satisfied with burning your house down in a very public and loud way. He's also satisfied with carbon monoxide poisoning that you never see coming. And one day you are spiritually dead. He's, he's satisfied with either. It can, it will happen to you if you are not diligent for the gospel. And then the best way to do that is my last, my last point, the last lesson that we see. That we grow in our love for God and not for man. When the victory over Midian had, had been achieved, where did the people look? They looked to Gideon. They said, "You delivered us. We want to honor you. We want to reward you. We want to make you our king." When they should have been looking at God, saying, "We want to make you our king. You led us. You brought us out of this." We we can't put our hope in men, or it absolutely will lead to idolatry. This this goes for all men, right? The the heroes of the faith, the great men that that we hear. Um, Spiritual leaders in our country, in our churches, uh, for years, I listened to um, a particular pastor, pretty well known. I'm sure most of you know uh, know him or, or will know what I'm talking about. But I listened to him for a long time because he was he was talented for one. Um, he spoke in a tone and in a way that I thought was missing from the church. He spoke spoke well. I didn't agree with. Everything, you know, sometimes he went too far, but in large part, I really respected him. One day I find out that he's been removed from leadership because he abused, verbally and emotionally abused his subordinates, those who were underneath him. We found out he was using church money to manipulate and lie about his book sales. He turned into Gideon. And it, it was never more clear to me on that day, someone I respected and held in high regard, if he can fall, we can all fall. And, and certainly there are other examples of that. My hope can't be in him. can't be in the other guys that I listen to and, and, and read and, and hear preach. The only way to keep ourselves from swinging back and forth on that pendulum from, from sin to sin is to fall so deeply in love with God that we lose our love for the things of the world, for the idols of the world. When Jesus tells us in Mark 12, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. He's saying that we should be taking everything that we have available to us and devoting it to love for the Lord. That's how we protect against being a Gideon. There's, I can't give you ten steps. Right, There are lots of practical things that we can talk about. There's no magic bullet. It's that. It's love the Lord. Pursue Him. Grow in your love for Him. Look at the things. Read the things. Hear about the things that remind you of Him and His gospel. And so I just want to send you with those, those questions that as, you, uh, as you're in your quiet time this week, as you're reading the Word as you're driving down the road, um, ask yourself those questions. Am I on guard? Am I, am I giving the spiritual battle of my life the attention it deserves? Or am I, am I kind of just coasting because things are okay right now? Are you reminding yourself often of the gospel? Are you surrounding yourself with the Word, with relationships, with prayer, fasting, to keep the truths of the gospel front and center in your life, that it's a daily reminder for you? Are you tracking down, are you finding those harmless sins in your life and doing doing war against them, doing battle against them, removing them, as if it were life and death? Because it is. Are you doing everything that you can to grow in your love for the Lord and appreciating what he has done for us. And abandoning the things that man has said you should appreciate. That's, that's our call from, from Gideon. Devote ourselves to these, these questions. Be warned. We, we can no longer, so everybody in this room can no longer say, I didn't know. I didn't know that risk was out there. We are all now sufficiently warned of what can happen when we disobey God. Not just in earthly circumstance, what can happen to us. That's part, that can be part of it. But more importantly, in our standing and our relationship with the Lord. So I encourage you, pursue those questions. Take time this week to ask them. Ask your accountability partners, um, those who are walking with you, and have these conversations. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the story of, of Gideon. That you would see the, the wisdom to have it recorded, that we, it be narrated for us, that we could see um, your work in, in his life, but also to see him abandoning you as a warning for us. God, I pray that we would never see ourselves as above any sin, that we would not see ourselves as not at risk, that we would understand We're at risk. And if we are not diligent, we can fall away from you. We thank you that we don't fall away from you. I pray that we would wake up every morning amazed at what you have done in us, that we are still a Christian, that you have kept us in the faith, that you have sustained us. I pray that we would lean wholeheartedly on those things. God, I pray about the things that we don't know the struggles and the spiritual strife at Emmaus and families and individuals of Emmaus. I pray that those would be opportunities to lean more fully on you. Not to be released from the pain of the world but to understand that we have greater joy, we have greater victory in you. I pray as a church family we would get to know one another to the point where we might know about those struggles and that strife. That we can walk together and just be reminders of the gospel. Now, we love you. I pray that you would help us in our unbelief, help us to grow in our love for you. We thank you for your son and what he gave up on the cross for us. I pray that in him we would trust. It's in his name we pray. Amen.